Behind the lens of 2019. Bear with me because we're having major audio issues here right now. Um, Pam, if you're watching on Facebook, the Facebook live stream of AdrenalineRadio.com right now, Pam is popping in to check connections. Yeah, I got static, but that's all I got, Pam. <laughs> so she's playing. But I'm... I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line, with all the movers and shakers and film and television makers uh, of today. And what a year it's been for BTL. No, it's still not working. Still no. Um, I mean, I don't need to hear myself, but when we have our caller come in, I need to hear myself. Of course, this is a great way to wrap out the year with technical difficulties. Um, now I hear now. Oh, I I now she turned it off. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> here you take these and you can hear. So we have for our final show today. As you know, we've been d doing a lot of interviews lately with potential award nominees, Critics Guild uh, nominees. Um, Today, we're going to have, uh, you're going to hear my exclusive interview with Stephen Price, the composer of the Aeronauts. If you haven't seen the Aeronauts yet, I can't encourage you enough to go see it. It is an exquisite film. It is a beautiful film. It is directed by Tom Harper, produced by those wonderful guys, Todd Lieberman and David Hoberman at Mandeville. And it stars Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones. Um... The score is ethereal. It's haunting. A lot of the of the music feels like the wafting of the wind. It is just an exquisite, exquisite scoring. Um, I can't. Pam is having too much fun here playing. Uh, I can't. It really is one of my favorite scores of the year. Um, and of course, Tom Harper. Uh, who you know best for directing Woman in Black 2, uh, Wild Rose, which is also a breakout film this year uh, for Jesse Buckley. So two very talented guys here. Uh, and it's, it's funny. Um, God, Pam is driving me crazy here. We, she can't make it. Nothing's working. Nothing's working, people. That's all we know. Nothing's working. But why don't we go ahead and get the interview, the pre-recorded interview started so we can play with it before we have our live guest at the midpoint of the show, Maxine Trump. No relation, people. Uh, Maxine is a film documentarian, and she is coming to us with her latest documentary. She's writer, director, editor, producer, essentially cinematographer, and the subject of the doc to kid or not to kid 
Um, this is one of the big questions that women have talked about for many, many, many decades. Must I have a child to be a complete person? Must I succumb to pressure uh, and have a child? Is there something wrong with me if I don't have a child? Um, from my perspective, there's nothing wrong. I prefer my nephews to having my own children. I can give them back when I'm done with them. Um, but in all seriousness, it's a very interesting documentary. I can't wait to talk to Maxine. And that is out on VOD today in the U.S. So it's perfectly time for her to be joining us. But right now, let's jump in and take a listen to my exclusive with composer Stephen Price talking about the aeronauts while Pam and I try to figure out what's wrong with the sound system in the studio. Take a listen. Very happy to be talking to you this morning. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know how busy you are. Oh, my absolute pleasure. No, I have to tell you, this is one of the most beautiful scores uh, that I have ever heard, particularly this year. It's all. Oh, well, thank you. That's, that's really that's lovely. Thank you. It's there is an ethereal nature to it. It's majestic and mystical at the same time really i mean the the individual Wonderful. the individual orchestrations that you've done with the utilizing horns and violins and even interweaving in the mix you know we get sounds of wind and it's all yeah, yeah. It, it's so stunning how do you approach because this film is so unique on so many levels. We've, we've never seen a film done through from this perspective with George's beautiful cinematography and actually shooting so much of this a few thousand feet up in the air in a balloon uh, and then popping yeah. on, you know, Louis' beautiful VFX with weather elements and whatnot. And your music, the score, mirrors that. Um, it's a beautiful dance between the music and the visuals at each specific height that we're attaining uh, in the balloon. So I'm curious. Uh, that's a lovely way of putting it, actually. I, I kind of saw it as the same sort of way to sort of dance between all the elements. But I mean, for, for me, that those things you're talking about, they, they were completely the appeal of the project. You know, it was, it was the fact that... Um, you know, these explorers were, were going into a place where they didn't know what was there. You know, they were going into the unknown. As soon as they went above the clouds, they had no idea what they would find. And the very first conversation I had with Tom Harper, the director, was very much like, well, if they're going into the unknown, then kind of the music should as well, right? And it should sound it should sound like its own unique thing. And the idea for me, I'm, I'm always kind of concept-driven at the start of projects. I kind of like to to think about how the music can be unique to, to how the film's being shot, how the film's going to, how the colours are going to come across. All these elements that, that, you know, I could see shots from the, the set and just talking to Tom, you got a sense of how they were going to do this. And I remember very early on in talking about, you know, them working on how light was going to hit the camera, you know, and, and all that. And you could get this idea that the music could feel very kind of tactile almost, you know, and I, I wanted it to feel like that the, when you were up in the, the sky, above the clouds, I wanted to feel like the music itself was kind of being carried on the wind. And that mm -hmm. was something that Tom got very into. And so we came up with this idea, basically, that, that once we left the ground, everything that you heard, for the most part, was, was wind-generated. So the, the score became brass and woodwind and 
human voice and harmoniums and organs and whistling and all anything that was kind of generated by wind basically and once i got that idea and i realized that the way that the, the it was up in the sky it was very quiet really i could be really detailed and kind of be very sort of um delicate and get get players to play incredibly quietly and record them in a very detailed sort of way so hopefully it felt kind of like you were intimate and you were kind of in there in the balloon with them but still having the ability to go sort of widescreen when we have those incredible vistas that they shot mm-hmm. and actually it's very funny i wish that i was with you because in my notes um for speaking with you i have music feels like the wafting of wind uh Oh, brilliant. Oh, well, at least that bit worked. Great. <laughs> that was one of my first notes about the music of the film. It feels like the, the wafting of the wind. And, and it does, and I, love, and I love how you mentioned, because as I'm listening to so many of these pieces uh, throughout the film and the visual context of them, the fact that you can bring everything lower, but then you really can get very specific... So that I'm listening to some of these, um, like we took to the skies. That little that little segment, it almost sounds like like a little like clarinet is doing a little beat, a little dance there. No, no, I, 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 pieces like that. What was fun about this was because the, the way Tom and Director of Photography had shot this, this um, you know, you, you go from these really intimate things with just two people in a balloon to wide, wide screen. And so musically, I could have all sorts of fun with that and record the same part in one studio, very, very closely microphoned and in the room and very, very intimate. But then I'd record the same parts in a big studio and capture all the ambience. So we could kind of literally surround the musicians with air, you know, in a room. So the whole, the whole process of writing it all came out of, of what they, the, what that story was, really. You know, and of course, one of my favorite pieces within the within the composition is, of course, the "And So It Begins" piece. It sounds like a drum beat and horns that almost it sounds closer to like a didgeridoo or a bassoon, as as it gets us yeah, in the. Yeah for what's about to come and that detail and that specificity that pops up in certain pieces I think is just absolutely stunning well it was a real I mean it's a real joy to work on because you know so many films that, that you spend time on in, in your life it's like you know you, you you put detail in but it's never going to be heard you know because there's going to be all those atmos effects and all those sound, big, big sound things. But when you're up in the sky and it's really very peaceful up there, apart from you know when you have a storm, and it meant that I could put detail in and use the cinema and use the theatre experience and the, the surround sound to to, to to put in detail, and you really kind of benefit. Mm-hmm. That means the music could often be really simple and 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 let the, the textual side of things kind of lead it, which was a lot of fun to, to put together. And and I'm detecting you know uh, quite a few tempo changes within the co- the score as well. Um, uh, you know, when we're at the "Have You Noticed" segment, it's a waltz. It actually it's it's got it's got that flow of a waltz. And you've got the orchestra, and you bring in some horns, and it's so beautifully, beautifully done. Well, thank you. I mean, and all credit to some remarkable musicians on this. And I, I worked with a, 
Bourne player um, over here called Richard Watkins at the very start and basically just had a day with him where I, where I asked him to you know, tell me all the things that a horn can do that I don't normally do, you know, all the non-conventional uses of a horn and he taught me all these incredible techniques and blowing instrument without making tone and all these wind sounds that you hear in the score, we kind of generated a lot of those with him and then a lot of the, the melodies in the film are carried by this incredible trumpet player called Phil Cobb who but he's just one of those players who, who, when you write these things, you kind of dream how it might sound, right? And and it, every time I put it in front of him, he he did exactly that and better. And it was it, the way he the brass still worked. Well, just it just felt like the film. So I was I was incredibly fortunate that I could get those musicians, and they really engaged with the, the film. And you know, it, it was it was a nice showcase for, for some brilliant players. Yeah, I I love the instrumentation as it pops up. And something that I find really interesting is that, you know, while this is essentially, it's an epic story, just by the very concept of it and what Glacier did um, in this particular 1852 balloon aeronautic ride, um, you never get overly triumphant with the music. Uh, and I find that really interesting because... It, as you well know in so many films when something wonderful happens and they reach the pinnacle and the music swells and it becomes bombastic yeah. and even in their moments of triumph and celebration as they're ascending or even when they survive when they land um, you never go full bore assaulting us um, and I find that very I, I very striking very very much came from the characters and that, that was one of the things I loved about the performances and that they they were kind of believably honest you know there, there, there is no kind of romantic kiss at the end of the film it, there, it, it, there is just a sort of there's a respect there between the characters which felt very kind of honest and truthful to me and musically you didn't want to kind of step on that really I, mm -hmm. I always wanted to let, let that breathe yeah I mean you know they're, they're both they're fighting their own kind of stories really and you know obviously Amelia had this terrible thing happen with her husband and, and James feels like he's not he's, he's not found his place in society they're fighting these things and they're and they're not kind of self-congratulatory show-off people they're not they're not kind of so there was a certain pride in kind of just pulling back some of my favorite moments actually in the film when when we finished it was the moments where we did build you know when they first beat the French record and they get to 26,000 feet I think it is and you know we build and we build and then there's a shot this huge great panoramic view and we go to absolute silence and just we, we hear the wind then and we hear that these very very small kind of whistled high line that's when it just you, you kind of you got to appreciate what they did but also you got to, to appreciate the beauty as they experienced it in the film I, I, those were the moments I was really proud of and those are the ones that really just stand out for me within this score because you're expecting to hear one thing based on what prior composers have done in films and you don't give us that so it's it's beautiful moments of surprise that as an audience member you get to you're almost mirroring the surprise that that our two yeah. aeronauts have when they achieve something so and and i love that you and that's what i love about um like films like this when you can you get to be just immersive with it and you get to and, and exactly that you're trying to, to 
just to place the audience in a, in a place they've never been before. And that, you know, those, those films are so few and far between. It's, it's, it's a real gift when you get to, to, to play with it, you know. Well, what was the most challenging aspect of, of creating this score, Stephen? It was the through line, I think. It was um, as, as we went through the process. I was on it for a very long time. Tom, Tom and I kind of talked very early on about this. This wasn't the sort of film where a temp score was ever going to work. You know, this always has to have its own sound. It always has to have its own identity. And uh, so the hard thing for me was was how to, to to work over a long period of time developing a score constantly when it's got to be unique. You know, there's no way of, of mocking this up with computers. It has to be recorded properly. It had to. It had to be constantly kind of. I kept had to keep experimenting with stuff. Meanwhile, the picture's always changing. So you're kind of you're trying to make sure that your through lines of your melodies are working. And I'm very much into the schematic kind of work. And so I was always very keen to make sure that things were where they belong to be. And things that the moment open out as as, as you wanted them to. And with a, a film which has a lot of VFX in it, you know, the, the, the things change as you go through it. You know, I I would work on a scene. And I'm very interested, influenced by the colours of things and the way the way that visuals are, and the smallest little movement in, in music, the smallest kind of the, the way a note opens out, the way a player kind of starts to, to add vibrato progressively to a note. You can record that, and it can be great. But then, say the VFX, the sums in it in a slightly different way. Suddenly, to me, it was rubbish, right? So you'd have to you'd have to go in and just make sure constantly, just just nurse the thing through a kind of very long process. So, the difficulties were, were just kind of making it real, you know, really, and just making it feel like it really belonged up in the moment. There's a lot of, of going back and forth and then watching the film and watching the film and, and you know, realizing where you've made a mistake and going back over it. But, you know, luckily the schedule allowed us for me to do that. And it was, it was one of those projects where I think we all got a little bit upset, but it was kind of nice to, to have that opportunity to, to really go over something and, and make sure you were giving everything the moment that you felt it deserved. Well, I have to say, as I said, you know, listening to this score, it is. It feels like the wafting of the wind. And yeah, and so much of that, you know, it does attribute to, as you just said, pointed out, the VFX, when all of a sudden we have not just one little yellow butterfly or two little yellow butterflies. We have 100 little yellow butterflies 26,000 feet up yeah. in the air. And we don't just have part of a rainbow, we have a 360-degree rainbow. Um, and that, that, yeah, that's also something you do with the music, because we have a 360-degree vista in this film. Yeah. And normally you don't have that. And the music embodies and fills that 360 degrees as well. camera when it came to moments like that. I mean, that, that butterfly thing that you, you mentioned, I mean, that's one of my, my favorite things. That was one of the, the earliest ones that kind of got quite developed um, sort of VFX-wise. And, and the way the camera moves, we start, you know, with it, with, we follow the, the path of one, one butterfly, but as we're doing that, we're moving back into the, into, into the air. And so the music kind of follows that, and there's a little solo violin line, because, you know, I, I allowed myself to use a violin for that moment, because these butterflies have risen up through, through the atmosphere. And then um, that kind of that follows the path of the butterfly, and the actual the, the, we recorded the the, the the solo violin player on his own, and those that that those notes just absolutely followed the arc of it, and allowed the rest of the music to kind of swell around you as the perspective of the picture changes. 
Um, and you, you know, those things are just so wonderful to play. It's just sort of writing almost in, in 3D when it comes to that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just really fascinating way to, to think about music, I think. Well, and, and that's part of the wonder of this film, Stephen, is that the film itself is wondrous from a visual aspect, and then you complement that and embrace that with the music. And I don't recall when I've ever seen it done to this extent before. Wow, that's, that's wonderful to hear, because that, that's very much what, you know, my earliest conversations with Tom when we talk, you know, when you talk about the possibilities of things, you know, and, and uh, you know, you always hope you get through the, the, the process without having to compromise those possibilities. And so we just kept going until we felt we were, we were happy with it. But it's, it's lovely to hear that you enjoyed it. And we're still dealing with the technical difficulties, folks. Uh, We're trying to get the big boss on the phone to see if he has any pearls of wisdom. But that was Stephen Price, composer of the Aeronauts. Now, take a listen to director and story by writer Tom Harper talk about, from a directorial perspective, bringing the ethereal magic of the Aeronauts to life to you this morning. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know how busy... Hi, Debbie. Hi, Tom. Well, I got to tell you, this is one exquisite film that you've put together here. Thank you very much. I, as, as your lovely producer, as Todd knows, I adore this film beyond belief. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, me- you mesmerize with the visuals of this film and all the thematic elements that you bring in deviating from the original story of September 5th, 1862, when Glacier went up with Henry Coxwell. Um, I'm curious what led to switching up the facts of the actual event, replacing Coxwell with a fictional character of Amelia, um, so that you could then take it further uh, with themes? I think it came out of the fact that there were a whole... Uh, well, the first flight I read about was this one in 1862, um, where they went there in feet, and it was such a remarkable feat that I... And I thought, well, that would be a good thing to finish around. But you know, whilst they achieved this amazing thing, during the duration of the flight, they didn't really speak to each other um, because they were so busy taking measurements. And mm-hmm. so um, whilst that was sort of amazing and admirable, um, two people sitting in silence for 90 minutes in a basket obviously doesn't make the greatest, necessarily makes the greatest film. So at that point, I realised that we needed to bring in elements either from uh, from our imaginations or from other flights and I started reading about other flights and other sort of extraordinary things that happened and and it, it, it meant that we we sort of formed an amalgam I suppose of some of the all, some of the remarkable things from a number of different flights um, and in that way sort of created this extraordinary journey epic journey in the skies that drew from all sorts of a, a, amazing and inspiring people characters and events um and because i knew that we had to bring in different elements i started thinking well rather than just having two people who are reasonably similar in the basket um who would be the most different person to to put into the basket with with james glacier um and there was this fantastic aeronaut called sophie blanchard who really 
uh, I was really struck by who was a sort of flamboyant firecracker of a woman who who did acrobatics who 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 would set off fireworks from her basket in the air and to go on these night flights and so I thought well if you put her um, who's all about instinct and um, and and Jane Glazer who's a meticulous scientist into the basket together then you would get a really interesting character dynamic um, so that's also how it came about. And it, and it truly is an interesting character dynamic. It works so well. Um, I've got to ask you about reteaming with George Steele, your cinematographer, uh, in creating the visual imagery here. Um, what the two of you have done visually, and then adding on some VFX, is just outstanding. Um, so I'm curious how you went designing the visual tonal bandwidth taking us up in the incremental footage that you take us, but then capturing the atmospheric bands of pressure and visualizing the stratosphere and the skyscape for us. We've never seen that in a film before. No, I think that's one of the the things that really appealed to us about making the movie. and it sort of all came from from story and from from reality really we wanted to to give a as as a realistic depiction of what it would feel like to uh, be in the air as possible now of course there are we i guess we're one level above reality in the sense that we go for the for some of the most impressive things that you might see all in one one ride but you know our starting point was reality and 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 um, you know if you were to be on that flight what would what would that experience be like so that's that sort of led us to building a balloon to flying for real to sending up all our hod's in the balloon to experience what it was like for real to shooting eddie and felicity three thousand feet above london um in a helicopter whilst they they form some of the scenes to sending a a a, a stunt woman outside on the outside of the balloon as she climbed up again three thousand feet above the british countryside um, and then we were able to take all of that and then put it into um, the stuff that we couldn't do for real and use those experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but another sort of key thing to George and my sort of con- concept, I suppose, was, you know, we, we in, the, in the vein of keeping it as real as possible, every shot had to be possible to either shoot from a helicopter or or be in the basket. Um, and so the idea was there's almost like a, another character in the basket, if you like, which was George. And that forced us onto wide angle lenses and to, you know, a lot of the kind of stylistic decisions were therefore made as a result of if we were going to do it for real, how would it be done? Mm-hmm. Well, and I know that Todd Lieberman is always, uh, authenticity in his films are, and doing things as practically as possible are his watchwords. And I'm curious, something else that we have also never seen before is the balloon that you had built is actually a gas-operated replica of those flown in 1800s. Anytime we ever see balloons in films, they're always just hot, current-day hot-air balloons. What was the significance for you in making sure you had the gas replica? I mean, it was pretty fundamental, really. Um, I don't, uh, you couldn't have taken a, a hot air balloon to that height, I don't believe. And and the fact that it, all those balloons at the time that they flew up and were gas balloons was, it felt very important to, to replicate it. But also there's just, a, there's a different feeling to them. They're piloted differently and they are, um, and there are subtle differences in the flight as well. The fact that you don't have the kind of the constant 
burning, which is very loud, mm-hmm. gives us it gives a serene quality, and you really do feel like you're escaping the world when you go up in them. And there is, and that's sort of something about what the film's about. It's about these two characters trying to escape their lives on Earth, and and through their relationship with each other, they sort of discover their place back on earth and and part you know part of that is is about their that that escape and that's you know it's all those stuff of stuff and i think that you know in 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 filmmaking in general really but certainly with this you know a lot of the it's the small details that that make it that make all the difference you know um there's that last two or three percent of the visual effects it's the it's the details of the because the performers have actually experienced what it's like to fly and then and they kind of went to those lengths that, that that kind of get their performance over the line it's the it's the kind of the physical extremes that felicity puts herself through that that help her to kind of deliver that kind of really busy physiological powerful physical performance so mm-hmm. so all all of those little details and and trying to capture things for as real as possible made all the difference i think well another thing that makes the difference with this film is your sound design this is one of the most unique sound designs I have heard. We have periods of silence. We have the echoing reverberation from uh, from 2,000 feet down, 20,000 feet down on the ground. It's absolutely stunning. How did you work with your sound designers and your mixers in coming up with this beautiful sonic scape for us? Well, I mean, I think it's a gift of a film for that, actually. And we, and I knew that it was always going to be a real opportunity here. And so um, Lee Walpole came on, the, sound, the supervising sound editor came on very early, in fact. And we, we spoke right at the beginning about ensuring. So even before we'd started filming, we he went up in a hot air balloon with Tom Williams, our sound recordist, and they recorded all a whole bunch of stuff from a real flight. Um, he was involved in, you know, soundproofing the basket because obviously they wicker baskets creak an immense amount. But just sort of just really getting a sense of what it, what the reality was, and then building it. Um, but there, there were lots of challenges actually because um, because we had to give the sense that it was kind of the balloon was moving through space at the same time as kind of catching the silence. So. It really was carefully crafted through all sorts of very small sounds, really, like you know the tinkling of instruments, the the, the sound of the flags moving through through space. Because you know another thing about balloons, so maybe going into too much detail here, but the thing about balloons is they don't really the the, the movement comes from going up and down. That's where the wind comes from because they're of course they're moving at the same speed as the wind. So it's, it's very particular. Um, and then the sense that you know because it's a balloon it's in three-dimensional space and so you can really hear what's below you in terms of the ground and above you in terms of the balloon so all those creaks and the rigging and the ropes and the you know presented a real opportunity and then there's, there's of course there's the storm and the falling the descent and the you know so there was, there was gosh there was there was a, a lot of work went into it and that was Tom Harper, Tom Harper, the director of The Aeronauts. And again, if you haven't seen The Aeronauts, I can't encourage you highly enough to see it. It truly is exquisite. And George Steele's cinematography is outstanding, along with Louis Marin as VFX supervisor, the VFX team that expounded upon what George captured with Light and Lens is just 
it truly is ethereal watching this. So, Pam, can you turn my volume up a little bit? We see we've jury rigged something. Uh, let's see. Uh, it's not really going any louder. So hopefully this is going to work. We've jury rigged. So hopefully I can hear. Uh, but welcome to the show, Maxine Trump. How are you? Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Well, I'm very thrilled that we could make it work. When the, the theatrical was coming out, times weren't working, you were going to be on a plane. And now, to kid or not to kid, comes out on VOD in the United States today. So, perfect timing. I'm so glad you could join us. It's great timing, and I'm really excited. Well, this is not your run-of-the-mill documentary. And what... Uh, Number one, you tackle this age-old question. Now, in my mind, this has never been a question. But <laughs> to have a kid or not have a kid. Um, but it is built into uh, the, the culture for centuries that women need or supposed to have children. But then there are many that don't see that fitting into the grand scheme. And you not only take the subject, but you turn the camera on yourself. And that's what is very intriguing about this documentary. Well, thank you so much, Debbie, that you've enjoyed it. And uh, you're right, it's uh, quite an intimate documentary. And it, I feel quite a brave documentary because it really goes to places that Otherwise, if I wasn't in the film, I don't think I would have been able to get the intimate access that I've, I've got with many of the people that were in the film. Well, because it is such a personal subject. Uh, and even when you're going to, who knew that there were support groups and that there were meetings and conventions being held um, with this as the subject matter? Um, so much of what you discovered is just... It's so eye-opening. So I'm curious how you did your research to find and discover all of these different elements that you then tackle within the documentary. Debbie, you know, it's so interesting. I think, as you know, having talked to so many documentary makers, we're often, and other filmmakers as well, we're often working out something for ourselves in the process of making the film too. Like it's either a world we want to explore or a question we want to answer. And although this is the first feature documentary about deciding whether or not to have children, there were a couple of books six years ago when I started making the film. And as I have been making the film, the community seems to have become more vocal. There's definitely more articles about the subject. And like you say, these meetup groups that had been there, um, but it was until I was having to confront my decision, did I actually find them. And I think that's true for a lot of people that were like me, were much more ambivalent about the decision. However, there are many people that I've come to meet that know from a really, really young age that they don't want to have a child. And so will have been part of these groups for much longer than I ever was. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people. I never wanted kids. <laughs> and my, well, congratulations, Debbie. And my mother always told, you know, people would ask her, when's Debbie getting married? When's she going to have kids? And my mother said, never. On either count, she's too selfish. 
Uh, so. <laughs> well, so you got the self. You did get the selfish remark as well. Uh, oh, well, yeah. Well, my mother was saying it partly in jest, but also she used it as a means to just shut people down. It's like she didn't mm, want to hear it. Right. She didn't want me to hear it. I have to get. I, you know, I give the woman a ton of credit because she was one of those people from the generation that it was expected to have children sure. to carry on the family name and the family line. And she always said that having kids, just everything she wanted in life, she just couldn't do anymore once she had kids. So, you know, and that it's amazing that she was that honest with you and being able to give you a real sort of spectrum of the view of motherhood because I think that's why really I felt I had to make the film because as you know I'm sure Debbie you know it's so motherhood or parenthood is framed in this wonderful kind of rose tinted glasses mm -hmm. all the ads that you see on TV the children are laughing and running through golden fields with the sun glinting off their hair and you know the truth of the matter is for many parents that I also interviewed it wasn't easy for them either right so let's be honest about the experience and let people make up their own mind mm -hmm. about whether that's something that will make them happy or not and that's something that with the variety of of people that you talk to I really I love the one woman that says the minute she was born, I knew I made a mistake. <laughs> right. But still, she, she loved She loved her daughter. She raised, but she raised her daughter. And the fact you spoke with the daughter also. And she understands perfectly. It's not that she was loved any less. But. Yeah. Uh, but it definitely forms, you know, helps you form an opinion. And when you know these things up front, I think. It's much better for you. You know, you don't. I totally agree because this is the film I needed when I was trying to make my decision mm -hmm. because I didn't want to feel alone in this. I didn't want to feel unusual because the truth of the matter is, you know, you're somebody that's made this decision not to have children, and there's 20 to 25% of people will not have a child, whether it's through circumstance or whether it's through choice. So there's actually many of us out there. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, seeing my family, God, I don't want to subject any other human life to them. So, <laughs> you know, you have factors Fair that enough. you must consider, Maxine. <laughs> you have, you have... You live by your example. Uh, I'll tell you. <laughs> but... You know, I love the fact that your own family agreed to get involved in, you know, in this the making of this documentary. And even your sister um, offering to be yeah. a surrogate for you if you would ever want a child. Um, that's pretty remarkable. And uh, to see the, these unselfless, these, you know, selfless acts. Um, the, yeah. You know, and contrasting it with valid reasons on the other, you know, on the other foot, you really present a very balanced representation here. You're not condemning either side. You're not celebrating either side. You're presenting everything very in a very balanced fashion. Thanks, Debbie. That's so important to me because any film I have made, I've wanted to 
to let the audience decide for themselves. You know, I think um, some documentaries have been made with a very sort of point in the finger, and I don't think that enables people to kind of say, oh, I saw this great film the other night, and feel like very happy about sharing it and talking about it because it's sort of like you're you're feeling a little hoodwinked and that's really what I try not to do and I make an entertainment so there's definitely laughter and people cry at this film but they also walk out going wow you know there's a lot in here I'd never knew before and and what's been amazing so far, just being on the festival circuit, people keep coming up or sharing about the film and coming up to say to me, wow, you know, I really enjoyed it. I laughed, I cried, and I'm going to be telling people about it. And that makes me feel I've done my job, you know. Well, and one of the great things about the documentary, Maxine, is that it's very, it's very uh, attainable. Um, it's, it's Mm. nothing, nothing is highbrow, nothing is scientific. It's very attainable. And you're talking to the average person that you'd meet on the street, a friend that you, the kind of person you'd be sitting down having coffee with or going shopping with. Um, it's very everyday. And I think that's one of the great connective tissues of the film. I really appreciate that, Debbie, because this decision affects absolutely everybody. Like, it's kind of incredible when I first sort of realized that. Like, wow, yeah, no one, it's not like, um, okay, I'm, I'm going to watch this film because I'm really into horror, or I'm going to watch this film because, you know, I'm into sci-fi. This is a film that everyone can relate to, whether they've made the decision from an early age not to have a child or are in the place trying to decide or can't have children. Mm -hmm. So I'm so pleased you mentioned about its accessibility because that's been hugely important for me too. You know, how did you go about approaching, you know, developing your through line? And you've got all these interviews. I'm sure you have many, many, many more. But how, yeah. you know, how, were you developing your through line as you were shooting, as you would learn something new? Would you go off on a tangent there? I'm very curious about this because editing a documentary, as you well know, is extremely difficult. Um, mm-hmm. It's even more difficult when the, it's definitely incorporating you as a subject and your POV. Uh, it's not as objective as so many are where you're removed because here you're definitely Mm. not removed but there are so many different viewpoints here what was your process like to find that through line to turn this into a cogent a, a cogent film you know it's fascinating because i couldn't understand when I was trying to make this decision, why I couldn't talk about it easily. And I had some upsetting experiences when I did try and talk about it. And that really kind of was my inciting incident. I was like, why can't I talk about this? I need to talk about it. I'm trying to make a decision of my life. And I don't want to make a mistake bringing a child that I might not want into the world. So that really began the journey for me and it was a very honest beginning of a journey where I you know met 
people very early on in the film that accused me of being selfish. And I was like, why is that selfish? If I don't want to bring a child into the world that isn't wanted, or if that's at least where I, I think I might be going. Mm-hmm. So it really helped having my own journey arc and finding a woman that could talk to me about what I feared most, regretting having a child. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of organically... I, I, you know, I'm a story producer. I work as a story producer and I make documentaries all the time. So I recognize that I always had to come back to me making my choice, but it really allowed me to spin off into these areas that I felt no one was talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, like a young mom that said, you know, this is really, really hard and, and the door's shut and the balloons burst when everyone congratulates you for having a child and then you're left with the child. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it wasn't easy. You're absolutely right, Debbie. There was plenty that ended up on the cutting room floor, plenty. And I'm part of film collectives where I do test screenings to make sure that the film was really exciting as well. That's so important to me that people sort of feel like, oh, where's it going next? I want to follow her journey. Gosh, you know, wow, she's going there. That's a surprise. So um, it's definitely a method of, filmmaking that I utilize a lot where I do test screenings along the way I'll edit some scenes and make sure they resonate with an audience and and then six years later here I am <laughs> with the film complete and, and out online oh you know how did any of the women anyone that you interviewed any of the group uh, the meetups that you attended did anyone have any trepidation about going on camera about having the camera in the room definitely how, how did you oh, yeah. get around that scenario? Well, as a filmmaker, you're always presenting the case, and I'm very clear with, with people that I could be, if, I, if I'm affecting anybody's life, I'm very upfront with saying to them, listen, I'm going to come into your life for an hour, two hours, a day of filming with you, I just want you to be sure that you know this film could really be seen by a lot of people. And I want to make you aware of, of what you're doing. And, and many people were like, no, especially the woman who realized she'd made a mistake having a child. She was like, I've written about it. It's time I talk about this. And for a lot of people, I think it really is an ownership of an identity as well. So for the, for the people that found it hard, I had so many people that were more than willing and many people I couldn't include in the film wow. that really wanted to take part, but, but didn't um, lend itself well to the story arc as it was unfolding. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm sure that that is what helped prompt your web series for Independent Lens, Should We Kid or Not? Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Uh, because when you have so many, so many interviews, so many arcs that don't fit this particular through line, now you have another avenue to present all those other arcs and, and stories. so exciting, yeah. I mean, that, that to me, I, I love the fact that you go from this documentary and it has spawned, you know, a web series that, so you can carry on. PBS, on. right? Yes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think that's the dream. That's the dream of every documentarian. PBS. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know, I think that's... But it's... It, sorry, no. it's, just to add on that, you know, it was exciting for them to re- recognize how this was being talked about. Like, this is a subject that's getting a lot of press right now. Um, and even Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez just talked six months ago about should we have children? Like, let's, like, make it a question now. Like, do we all want children? Don't we? And so it's been really exciting. I've been making this for six years, but really exciting to see in the last six months that the subject is getting much more press. And now this spin-off web series, which has allowed me, like you said, Debbie, to really include other people's stories. And I'm a straight white woman that's married, and I've been able to include gay guys talking about surrogacy, women talking about when they should stop IVF, because that's such a huge decision, mm-hmm. or a Mexican woman and Jamaica woman talking about their pressures from their culture, which is very different from the pressure I had. So it's been wonderful to have that opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up that series. You know, where all did you travel uh, in in the making of to kid or not to kid, this you didn't confine yourself to the United States for these interviews, did you? No, I wanted to make sure this wasn't just a subject. As people know in this community, this is a subject that is worldwide. You know, yeah. everyone around the world is making this decision, and we go to Europe, but we also interview people from China, from Mexico, from all around the world, because it really varies even more. I mean, the pressure is is really intense in other countries. And I feel when I hear their stories, I got away lightly, even though my Mm -hmm. pressure was was pretty um, huge. So that's been delightful for me to be able to give voices to some of these women and men, too. And, of course, and Megan. Megan is in Wales, correct? Yes. Megan, yeah. Megan is an interesting... She's she's an interesting an interesting story throughout. She's she's your touchstone that you keep revisiting uh, through the mm. documentary. You know, this poor girl, 25 years old, she knows what she wants. And nobody wants to believe that she that's what she wants. But it it also, you get in there a great subtext on the medical profession and what they're willing to do not do where they draw lines and I would love to see that explored even more under this lens yeah we're going to and already have explored tubal gation in the PBS web series too about another young woman who talks to a father of five children, and they debate her reason to not have any children and his reason to have five children. And that was a really wonderful episode. But you're right, Debbie, what we've really been excited about as well with the film is we've already started to have interest from communities like conference, psychology conferences, sociology conferences. Um, wow. We've been talking to OBGYNs and physicians communities because really getting this film to the people that treat men and women, but especially women, when we're pumping our bodies with hormones for years 
And why can't we have a permanent form of birth control much earlier if that's our heart desire and we're proving by walking around as Megan was with this huge folder full of citations and reports, et cetera, et cetera, trying to prove that she's of sound mind and knows what she wants to do with her body and really wants to have the sterilization procedure because the hormones really affect her badly. So that's been a big hope of the film, and we're starting to see um, some movement there with being invited to screen to people that are treating us at the first line of kind of defense, really. Wow. But, and of course, you also present the male perspective here, courtesy of your own husband. (laughs) Um, You took a camera into the hospital room for his vasectomy. This man must really love you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I I agree. That's amazing. I I mean, you have the great, you capture on on camera the great conversation between yourself and Josh. uh, And that's the kind of conversation most people keep for the confines of their own house between the couple. Um, (laughs) You've now put it out there and he agreed to it. Um, (laughs) to go on camera and have this conversation and then let you take the camera into the hospital room and film the procedure being done. Uh, (laughs) I didn't expect to see that. (laughs) A great climax to the film, don't you think? Oh, my God. I thought, actually, I was laughing as I was watching it. Because it's like, all right, he's either totally crazy or he loves her a lot or both uh, that he would allow. And I love the fact that you're in the room and you're asking Mm. questions. You know, he's laying there and you could tell by the look on Josh's face. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. And you're asking questions. So, well, what, what, what's that? What's that? And the doctor's talking about, oh, you'll never even see it. Most guys, they can't even tell where the incision was made. And you're just, you know, you're on a, a little scientific retreat here. And it, it just, it truly is a great climactic part of the film. Uh, but th- here again, it's so accessible and so relatable. The casualness that you and Josh have, that it takes any kind of fear and trepidation somebody may have, it takes that away, just watching the two of you. And that is it's very striking. Thank you. I, yeah, hats off to my husband for allowing me to film that. <laughs> uh, but what it really goes to show as well is that how easy that procedure is. Mm-hmm. And it's the least used method of contraception. And it's such a simple procedure. And I was really able to show in such a visceral way. Yes, indeed. How men <laughs> could really take a lot of the weight, if you're a straight couple, a lot of the weight off our shoulders. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And, you know, it's so, but so many men, and this is something I would love to see, um, more interviews on because so many men are adverse to the procedure because where so many women think sterilization makes them less of a woman a lot of men think a vasectomy does it takes away 
you know, their macho, their macho-ness. Um, and I'd be curious to see, you know, what the percentages are and what the actual current comment thoughts, thoughts are in this ever-changing world that we're in now. Yeah, and it's really interesting because the vasectomist, Doug Stein, who was doing the operation, talked as well about how women are so much more, um, it's very, it's much more common for us to have physical examinations in that area. And, and men have very little experience of that. So it makes, he thinks, it makes men much more adverse, like you say, to having that procedure where women, we're just used to it. You know, we, you know, quite a lot of us, I did have to have a physical examination every year because of the problems with my womb from mm-hmm. an early age. And, you know, that's just what I'm used to. But men aren't used to that. And if, like you say, if you can just break that bubble a little bit, and this is what the film, the ambition for the film is to try and really give this awareness and I've had men come up to me straight after a screening and say I need that guy's card I want that vasectomist <laughs> <laughs> and that's really amazing it's been a great positive effect of the film too well you know and we also as women know most men are big babies anyway so you know, <laughs> it, it, you know it helps to have somebody like Josh you know on camera um, so yeah. it's a, see, there's nothing to be afraid of. Actually, you're the one saying nothing to be Certainly. afraid of as he lays there with this look on his face. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I think that's, you know, that's also, I think part of it. Not only do they not get examinations and, and what most men don't want to go to the doctor anyway. So, right. you know, all of these little things all come into play under this one umbrella of, to kid or not to kid. And at first blush, you don't think that there are this many elements involved. And then watching the documentary, there are so many offshoots here. Um, it, it really, it's, it's very eye-opening, Maxine. Thanks, Debbie. I think what people don't realize about many of us who are making this decision and Megan talks about this, the young woman who tried to get the sterilization, is that we think really hard about this. And yet she could have a friend that's of similar age to her that can have a baby, no problem at all, and doesn't have to necessarily think long and hard about it. But she has to go through doctor after doctor mm-hmm. after doctor after doctor to try and get a permanent form of, of contraception. And how easy it is for people to get, the sectomist said, 45, it's estimated 45% of pregnancies are unplanned. And that makes you think, right? Mm-hmm. That definitely makes you think. And it's, as part of what's prompted over the years, a lot of commentary when every day we see in the news about, you know, children being abused by their parents. And my engineer was just telling me on the news last night, there was a story about a woman who took her three kids, put them in a bus, put a bucket there they could use to go to the bathroom in. And she mm. went and she went off to go hang out drinking and doing drugs, whatever she was off doing and left them. And that's what prompts mm. all of these memes and all the comments over the years about, 
you know, parents need to take a test. They should get a license to be a parent, to have a child. And you and and so much yeah. of what we see when you mention Megan and what she has to go through, you know, on the flip side, it's like some of these, you know, other people out there, especially with 45 percent of pregnancies being unplanned. It really makes you stop and think about, you know, what, you know, where are the priorities here? You know, what? So and and that's really that was really on my heart in making the film. I didn't want to. I didn't want to bring anybody unwanted into the world, and I really hoped one of my biggest heart's desire for the film was that people could watch this and go, "Yeah, I know I've been feeling like this. I've been pressured and pressured and pressured, but there's other people out there that feel like me." I knew I know I'll be miserable if I have a child and I shouldn't bring this unwanted child into the world, but everybody wants it, but I don't want it. Mm-hmm. So now I have this voice or this film that I can send to the person pressurizing me and say, listen, I just seen this. Can we talk about it? It's an icebreaker. And yeah. that's what makes me so happy. It's allowing people to find their voice. And I, I couldn't be happier about that. Oh. It's, it's so exciting. Well, unfortunately, Maxine, we are all out of time today uh, for the whole show. I can't believe it. Well, this has been an absolute <laughs> holiday. Well, you, you know, I'm just I'm so ex- you are my last guest live guest on the show for the year. Um, so this is, that's wonderful. Well, I think it's wonderful because now everybody, now that's on VOD, they can see to kid or not to kid and they can make new year's resolutions about parenthood or not parenthood. (laughs) That's, you know, absolutely. I I love it. Oh, Maxine, an absolute joy. I hope you'll come back on the show because I know you've always got stuff in the works. Uh, and I would love to have you back. Debbie, I would lo- I'd be thrilled to have you back, and I'll stay in touch about next developments for sure. And thank you for being a big fan of the film. It's oh. always a joy when I can talk to somebody that totally gets it. And <laughs> congratulations on your decision as well. Ah, oh, well, thank you so much, Maxine, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye, Debbie. Happy holidays. Same to you. And that was Maxine Trump, no relation to the Trumps. Um, To kid or not to kid, it is available on VOD in the U.S. right now. Um, It really is. It's a very interesting documentary. It's fun uh, and very engaging. So if you want to sit at home over the holidays, check it out. And those of you looking at the Facebook stream, as you can tell, we finally got our technical difficulties fixed. Of course, the last show of the year, there had to be technical difficulties. But we plethora of films, plethora of films that are out there in theaters for you right now or on your streaming services. Still, Friday, you know it's coming, The Rise of Skywalker. Um, I think that is the the one must-see film remaining for the entire planet uh, on Friday is Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. But Golden Globes are coming up. Oscar nominations will be announced on, I believe, January 13th. I think it's the 13th. 
This is this is our last show for 2019. We will be back on when are we coming back? Monday, Monday, January 6th. We will be back with and we've already got live guests booked into January. So thank you all for being such fabulous listeners, fabulous readers. You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online uh, around the globe. But always on BehindTheLensOnline.net, which hopefully I'll have some time to get caught up with, uh, as well as all of our shows are archived on, not only on BehindTheLensOnline.net, but available on all of the podcast platforms, um, iTunes, Apple, whatever it is, Stitcher, Podbean, and of course, many are right here at AdrenalineRadio.com. You can find archive materials there as well. So thank you, thank you for being listeners, readers, and moviegoers. And until next year, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.